Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Get ready, because we're coming at you with another episode of the Triple Threat Theater podcast. This is episode number 29, and my name is Ryan Miller. Oh, and I'm Joe Daxberger. <laughs> it's my uh, morning rock jock zoo crew oh, intro. That was pretty good. Trying it out. WNBC. <laughs> TTT. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be like the color commentary on the traffic. By all means. Yeah. I'll do the background noise for you. All right. Side project. <laughs> Mills- oh, sidetrack's gonna sue somebody. Yeah. Talk to legal. <laughs> yeah, boy, what's up? We're back at it. Mm-hmm. This episode. Yeah. We're grappling with life and death. Mm-hmm. Tell the people, Mills. Well, this episode is called A Brush with Death. And uh, the concept here is these are all movies which star death as a character. Mm, the old Grim they Reaper f- himself. They all feature death personified. Mm. And uh, this was this episode was my idea. And as is typically the case, it occurred to me that there were two films that I knew of off the top of my head that featured death as a main character or an important character in the film. And the two that I had originally come up with were The Seventh Seal and Meet Joe Black. Oh, okay. Uh, neither of which I'd seen, but I knew that both of them were about death. Mm-hmm. And then for the third one, you know, I did a little Google searching of like movies where death is a character. And there's like a bunch of things that come up. But like having not seen the movies I was reading about, trying to discern which ones he was a significant character. Because I didn't want it to be like, oh, death appears in one scene. Right. You know. Because I wanted it to, you know, that's the whole yeah. theme is that death is like an important character. And so we'd never hear the end of it. I would never let myself live it down. That's that's more likely. But uh, so the third film that I ended up uh, going with, mainly because when I was doing my research, because I had never seen any of these three movies before, I noticed that death is right there on the poster for Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. So I figured I was pretty safe picking that as the third one. Okay. Yeah, I agree. And that's how the sausage is made. <laughs> I don't think we put on any front that we have some kind of genius system here for doing this. I mean, it's I think cool. this many episodes into the show, yeah. it's probably pretty obvious yeah. that there's not a lot of genius going on. Well aware. Yeah. It's just like, what are these two idiots come up with this time? So, uh, like I said, I hadn't seen any of these. I had been curious about Meet Joe Black for a while. Not like mm-hmm. at the top of my list of things to do, but... You know, Brad Pitt, Anthony Hopkins, mm-hmm. interested in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seventh Seal is one of those movies that I wouldn't necessarily say I was like dying to see, no pun intended, but uh, had long been on my list of like, like my wall of shame because yeah. it, it's one of those movies that's talked about as like one of the greatest films of like world totally. cinema and everything. This is like one of those criterions that I see everywhere 
and am always like, gotta watch that. Yeah. Like, I know it's a classic. I, you know, people adore that movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As I'm known to do whenever that Barnes and Noble, uh, 50% off criterion sale comes around, I'll usually blind buy a couple of things that I've been interested in or wanting to check out. And I've almost picked it up a couple of times and never have. So this was Mm -hmm. an excuse to, to knock that one off the list. And then, yeah, seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure before, but never Bogus Journey. Uh, had you seen any of these? What was your history with any of these films? I don't believe I've seen Bogus Journey. If I have, I saw it when I was nine years old when it came out, and possibly <laughs> never again, because it's just, I knew it was the sequel. I knew the Grim Reaper was in it. You know, I built. I knew it was Bill Sadler, but that just might be from over the years and, you know pop culture kind of knowing about it. But as I was watching it, I was like, none of this looks familiar at all. Mm -hmm. I've quite, you know, probably for decades now, I just thought seventh seal was a much loved movie. And the entire thing is about a game of chess on the beach. That's just what I thought it was, (laughs) which always, we'll get into that when we talk about it. It wasn't exactly what I was expecting either, but always sounded interesting to me, but that's what, it was just one mm-hmm. of those ones. It's like, got to watch that. Maybe someday I'll have a podcast that forces me to watch things. I keep telling myself <laughs> I need to watch. Uh, Meet Joe Black. Never seen it. Was aware of what it was. Mainly just because I've seen that one scene that everyone knows about <laughs> many times. The car crash? Yeah. So that's like just the gist of being on my radar. Like I re- I know for sure I've seen the original Bill and Ted's, but that's another one. Like now when I think back, like what do I even remember from those movies or Mm -hmm. that, that movie? I mean, like I said, going into bogus journey, I was like, none of this looks familiar. Yeah. So I'm going to say, I haven't seen any of them. Mm. So first time watches all around. Yeah, buddy. Uh, Well, before we get into the fun and talk about, you know, Keanu Reeves, running around, making a fool of himself. Mm-hmm. Dax, what do you think happens when you die? Oh, now we're talking. Do I think a robed fellow escorts me to the River Styx? I don't know, Milzy. I don't know. Have you ever had any brushes with death? Mm, the closest I can really think of is... uh. Well, I guess I rem- I I have a vague memory of when I was a kid. I live at the end of a long lane and mm-hmm. uh, there's a highway that passes by the end of the lane. Uh and it it's it's got a lot of truck traffic. Like have you seen um uh Pet Cemetery? Yes. So you know how in Pet Cemetery it's like it seems like this like quiet mm-hmm. dusty town road but then it's like trucks just yeah. breeze by that like super yeah. fast it's like a it's shipping like lane here because we have uh the lehigh cement plant mm-hmm. in town that's like the only thing in the town that i live in is a huge cement plant that you can see and from so all we've parts got of the town. like cement trucks and like delivery trucks and shit constantly driving back and forth past my lane and so uh i have vague memories when i was a kid of like being at the end of the lane, like with my mother waiting for like the bus or something. And I think like my father was like jogging and he was on the other side of the road, like Mm -hmm. was returning from his jog. And I saw him and just took off across the street 
and almost got hit by a giant truck. And like after the fact, remember my mom telling me like, you know, she was shouting at me to stop and she's glad I didn't because if I did, I probably would have gotten hit. Like I just kept running. Mm -hmm. That's like the closest thing I can think of. But I mean, I was so young. I don't really think I had any concept of uh, the bullet that I had just dodged. Mm. So no like life flashing before my eyes in that scenario. But okay. Close call, though. Mm-hmm. All right. I've got I've got a story myself. Mm-hmm. This was... I was 18 years old. I was up in Maine. My old boss used to have, like, a, a big, like, summer house on a lake in Maine. Now, me and my coworkers and families, like, would go up a lot during the summers and even the winter, like, on long weekends and stuff. And he had four-wheelers. You ever driven a four-wheeler, Mills? Many times oh. I live in the middle of nowhere and my father's a hunter. Excellent. So by this point, I had a couple summers of like heavy four, four-wheeler riding under my belt. To the point just to say that I was like plenty comfortable on one. Now, from what I knew of four-wheelers, those, you know how they have like the, from what I knew at the time, like the thumb activated like push button mm-hmm. accelerator. Yep. So a a new quad had come to the compound and it had <laughs> like a motorcycle grip oh. accelerator, mm-hmm. which I remember being like the thing. I think the thing was like kind of moderately souped up. I remember that big tire, had these big funky tires, crazy exhaust. And it had that, that grip. So some me, a couple of other guys were up at the, at the top of the street where this house was, there was a cemetery. And, like, half of it was used up and half of it was a giant dirt patch. So, of course, mm-hmm. we would go up there and turn this, you know, rip this dirt patch to shreds. As one does. Yeah. I was never, like, crazy on it, but I would have a good time, like, kind of bombing around. But I was still, like, that that grip made me nervous just because it, mm-hmm. it was new to me. So, of course, now... Come to find out, I didn't know exactly was what was beyond like the tree line here, but I remember you know, I had some speed under me, and I kind of like it's not even a jump. I kind of like hit a divot in the ground hard enough that it, I almost started to lose control. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, I just instinctively like pulled back on the handlebars, but then also yanked the accelerator. Mm. To the point that I took off through the tree, through the brush line, which I found out as I was going through it that it was all rose bushes. <laughs> Tore my arms and face to shreds. Uh, I was booking it probably 40, 50 miles an hour and slammed right into a tree beyond the mm. tree line. I didn't fly off the thing or anything. Thank God. But I, you know, I hit this one tree pretty good. Come to find out that tree stopped me from going off a cliff. Oh, shit. Yeah. Which is basically like a, I mean, say cliff, but it was basically like the tree line. And then it just dipped right down maybe a hundred feet down to like a kind of like wooded ravine. God. So like, you know, in the split second, Millsy, yank that throttle, go through, I don't know, 50 yards of rose bushes. Through some trees and smash into one. And I can remember I just came to a stop, 
And like, yeah, I think my ears were ringing. I was like, what just happened? <laughs> and I looked down and like scratches up both of my arms, bleeding already. I wipe my face. My hand is covered in blood. <laughs> I hop off the thing. I think, the, I think the thing was still running even. And I eventually, I just kind of like, I kind of panicked because it was like my boss's new quad. I think mm-hmm. at the time I was like more worried about that to the point where like where it was, it was kind of stuck to when I got it out. The only thing I could do was like let it like kind of ride down the hill that it was on. So it didn't like mm-hmm. tumble or anything, but I got to like the bottom of the ravine and then spent some time once people came to find me like where the, what the hell happened to you? <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, I'm just down this ravine covered in blood. Uh, got it out, blah, 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 you know. I didn't break anything, thank God, but I was pulling, like, thorns out of my skin for weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't really have any... I got a couple scars on my arms, I think, that are still from that to this day, but... That was my close call. And that was also... Wow. That was, like, a Saturday, maybe a Sunday, and I think the following Wednesday I was starting college. <laughs> oh, wow. So I still, like, remember rolling up with, like... Like a pretty decent like, battle gash, damage, a gash across my face, and <laughs> yeah, just like some solid like battle damage. And it's September, and I think I had like long sleeves on because my arms looked like I'd been through hell. It's a good way to make a first impression. That's true, Milzy. That's true. So, yeah, thanks for that. Glad that tree. Glad I instinctively wink, wink, uh, drove <laughs> into that tree. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah I've flipped a few four wheelers before, but. Uh... Never almost careened off of a uh, <laughs> a cliff. You mean like Not flipped, me. like took a turn too fast and like dumped oh, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Nice. nice. Quads are a good time. That, uh, they are. That didn't scare me away, but I mean, I've never been one to like do like crazy jumps or anything, but yeah, I'll just stay away from the pistol grip sh- uh, accelerators. Yeah, the one time uh, my friends and I went and did some crazy jumps, my friend Chris broke his ankle yeah. riding one of our four wheelers. So, oh, yeah, that kind of put a stop to that. But mm-hmm. you know, live and learn. Yeah, I mean that those like few summers I was up there, there was, somebody was getting banged up by those things. There was a there was a trike up there for a while that maimed a couple people. <laughs> but yeah, never trust a vehicle with less than four wheels. <laughs> Dude, we gotta start making t-shirts. I swear to God. <laughs> if Mr. Bean has taught me anything, uh, never I, trust a vehicle with less than four wheels. I don't know that reference, but I like it. <laughs> we gotta get you to watch Mr. <laughs> oh, Mr. Oh, Bean movie. Oh, what can we get that in the trio? Like, with? Uh, four by four movies and Mr. Bean movies. <laughs> Where's my scratch pad? <laughs> Done. Oh. All right. Uh, yeah, probably so, time we actually talk about some movies. Death. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to start at the beginning with uh, the seventh seal from 
So as to what you were saying about the movie wasn't quite what you expected. Right. Same here. Like, I knew the premise of death and a guy playing chess. Mm -hmm. And I thought the movie was going to be, like, in my mind's eye, based on just that premise and nothing else, I thought it was going to be, like, the two of them playing chess and having, like, long conversations about, like, heavy stuff. And then, like, flashbacks to the guy's life or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Which isn't really what it is at all. <laughs> no, no. But over the years, that's what I convinced myself it was going to be. I mean, Millsy, totally. Like, I, I was sure. Like, I'd put money on that this mo- the entire movie was one one shot, one location on the beach. <laughs> I don't know where I got that from, but I was just sure that's what it was. Yeah, I wasn't quite there, but I did expect a lot more chess playing because the movie is, uh, it's like a little over an hour and a half, I think. Mm-hmm. Not quite an hour 40, maybe. And I would say time that the chessboard is on screen, oh. maybe like six minutes. Ooh, even that's rich. Yeah. Uh, so basically, for anyone who doesn't know, like we didn't until just recently, mm-hmm. the film is about a knight and his squire returning from 10 years off fighting in the Crusades. And the Black Death is sweeping the countryside. And uh, Death appears to the night on a beach and is basically saying, like, hey, it's time to come with me. Your time is up. And the knight offers to play chess against Death, essentially just to prolong his existence. Like, as long as they're still playing the game, he won't die. And then with the caveat of if... I win, I don't have to die yet. Mm -hmm. And instead of just sitting and playing a full game, it's like they start the game, and then the knight and the squire continue on their way, and then death and the knight sit down and play a little more later on, and then they continue on their way, and they meet other people, and things happen. And it's basically just the story of a couple of days of the knight and the squire kind of gathering other hangers on as they head to to the knight's, uh, like, castle home. Mm Mm-hmm. And every yeah. now and then death pops up. For a little chess. I mean, mm-hmm. by the th- four minutes in, they're off that beach. Yeah. Well, sure. even even just the opening credits, I went, what the fuck? I mean, there's a lot of people in this movie for hanging out on the beach. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, still like not knowing what's happening. Yeah. So based on what you were expecting, would you say that you were pleasantly surprised? disappointed or it was a wash based on your expectations um i was like expect i was certainly expecting like just you know a very well shot like uh like battle between man and death you know like Mm -hmm. via the chessboard their conversation and everything battle of wits like totally i don't know why i was so sure of that so and I'm not one to like. I try to always like manage expectations going into all movies. Like that's not usually like a factor for me. Is by the time I've watched a movie, like where my expectations met or anything. But I mean, this one I certainly like. Once they were off the beach and the, just the whole cast, I was like, oh, I was like, what am I getting? Like, what is this? <laughs> you know. It's, I I mean I got to be honest. There was some initial disappointment there because I was just like I you know. Maybe just from so much buildup in my own head. 
Um, that being said, I did I did really enjoy it. Yeah. By the end, I mean certainly. Yeah, I I also had that initial disappointment. Um, not because it wasn't what I expected, but because since I I did like I guess because I was expecting one thing, turns out it's not that, and it took me a while to really figure out what was gonna happen and where it was going and the whole concept of it, which you get through conversations later on. I would say for like the first 20, 30 minutes, I was like kind of bored by it and a little turned off by it and disappointed and like, oh boy, this Mm -hmm. is not what I was expecting. And like, I'm not excited to sit through the rest of this, you know, it starts off and they, they end up at a, you have the little cutaway to the actors like by themselves, like uh, sleeping in their cart or whatever. But then it's the scene at the church and uh, the squire talking to the artist and then the knight giving his confession to who he doesn't realize his death at the time. Right. And like that whole part, I was just kind of like, I don't know, I'm not really digging this. As soon as it got to the like two villages down the line, Mm -hmm. like they pass by the abandoned one and they pick up the mute girl. Yeah. And then they get to that second town where... uh, the the actors are performing and you get the scene in the bar and things started to take shape and more characters like entered the film mm-hmm. like who you were going to stick with for a while yep. that's when it started to round out for me and that's when I started yeah. to enjoy it a lot more I mean almost same here the point where he's talking to the priest and it ends up being deaf mm-hmm. I, that was like an uptick for me because I was like oh this sneaky bastard like <laughs> like I did enjoy that but overall, still had the feeling like, uh, like just, I don't know about this. I even, even like that time frame threw me off because I was like, wait, is this a flashback? Did they leave the beach? Like, did I miss something? I did like mm-hmm. struggle with that for a stretch. And yeah. it's a long time between the opening beach scene where they're playing chess and the second time they yes. play chess because yeah. it's probably like forty something minutes into the movie before they continue their game. And it did start to feel like, well, when are we going to get get back to that plot? And like, how right. important is that even to the movie? Was I just, you know, misconceiving what this was all along? Yeah, because like for a, for a bit, I wasn't sure if he had gone on from the beach or if this was like, you know, the, was the movie going to be him leading up to getting to the beach? Mm-hmm. I didn't. I wasn't sure. I mean, after a while, you know, you figure out that it's it's ongoing. But same kind of thing. I was like, I do want some more chess just because I like to watch that kind of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I want more Grim Reaper. I like how he looks in this. So, yeah, you know, yeah. This is guy. like the like. Well, obviously, it turns out I didn't know this beforehand, but the Bill and Ted Grim Reaper and his whole purpose in that movie is an obvious homage to mm-hmm. or parody of potentially uh, the Seventh Seal, and so this version of Death is like, you know, black hood, black cloak, white face, black gloves. Yeah. But it's even like the snug hood, mm-hmm. which I kind of like, like the head sock kind of thing. I actually was, <laughs> yeah. a, I was a fan of that. But yeah, um, another thing that I was a little surprised by is, despite the fact that he is the one playing chess, Max von Sydow is the lead actor in the movie, or mm. you know, he's playing the character who's playing chess, so like the main character. But for a lot of the movie, especially again in the first like two acts. It feels like the squire is more the main oh, character because he's the one, he's the one getting mixed up in more stuff and yeah, like the uh, Max von Sydow's character is just chilling, being the strong mm-hmm. silent type. <laughs> totally, without a doubt. And so he's more pivotal in the end, 
But um, yeah, I was even confused by that because he was the only name who I knew going in and, you know, he's like the face on the Criterion box and everything. So, yep. you know, I just uh, assumed that he was going to be more of the focus, but for a lot of the movie, he kind of isn't. I mean, it does become an ensemble cast at some point, which, yeah. as I mentioned, was potentially one of the saving graces for me once you had more characters to spend mm-hmm. time with and more interactions instead of just the knight and the squire wandering around. It's certainly like the the knight takes over in like the third act, but like mm-hmm. you said, the first two, or after like the initial scene, it's like almost all squire. Mm-hmm. To the point where I'm like, where is the knight? What is going on? You know? <laughs> yeah. This This will sound weird, but at one point I was like, I changed it from subtitles to dubbed. Oh yeah. Just well, it was part I just I really was like enjoying the cinematography so much that I just wanted to be able to focus on that more. And then but man, the criterion that I watched, the dub was so bad. Oh really? Like the sound quality of it was like pretty rough. Uh it didn't necessarily take anything away from me because I still, like I said, could because when I when I'm watching something with subtitles, like I feel like I just linger on the words a lot. I know that's not, that might sound off, but it's just certain movies, like visual movies, I really just want to, you know, keep my eyes glued to what's, what's in front of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of why I switched that up. It didn't take anything away, but it was like, I, I feel like just a different experience. Plus, I didn't like like the look of the subtitles. Did you watch a Criterion too? I watched it on Amazon. Uh so I rented it on there, so uh, okay. I don't know mm. if it's the same version as the Criterion or I gotcha. or what. I mean, it was it's a black and white film, and then the subtitles were white, which occasionally caused problems. Right. And, you know, I, I watch plenty of movies with subtitles. I don't mind subtitles. And this was one of the movies where I feel like the subtitles would disappear from the screen sometimes a little faster than I could read them. Oh, okay. But... Uh, I made it through fine. Yeah. Two or three times I, I rewound just to be like, hold on. I, I don't think I caught mm. all that. But I mean, to bring it back up, I think the movie's like amazing looking for sure. Mm-hmm. The cinematography is wild. Yeah. Well, the thing I thought was kind of interesting is so the movie, like we mentioned, has gone down as like a classic and like a time honored film. Uh, you know, it, just about any best movies of all time list you look at, it's not necessarily going to be in the top five, but it's going to be on there. Mm-hmm. But at the time when it came out, I guess, I don't know if it was it was somewhere around like the 18th or 20th movie Ingmar Bergman had made. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of reputation he had at the time, but apparently audiences initially praised the look of the film and the cinematography, but really panned the writing of it. And it took a while for it to come around as like, you know, a beloved movie. Yep. But. Yeah, the movie does look great. Just a lot of really cool visuals. Um, There were some effects in there that I didn't even realize were effects shots. Mm. Like, as I was reading about it afterwards, the one that still blows my mind, because after I read it, I was like, what? What are they talking about? And I went back and I rewatched the scene like six times, and I still couldn't tell. But uh, at the beginning, after they leave the beach, that church that they end up at where he gives the confession to death. Yep. The establishing shot when it's like kind of a down shot with a, like a dead tree in the foreground, like the limbs of a dead tree kind of on the left of the screen. 
and there's like a fence with a little stone archway, and then past the fence is the church, and that church wasn't actually there. And the way that they achieved the look of making it look like it was there is the church was a miniature that they had stuck into the branches of the tree that's in the foreground. And so it's like forced perspective makes it look like there's a church there. Mm -hmm. And like I say, I went back and I rewound it and I watched it like four or five times. And I'm like looking for shadows of the branches or like watching for the wind to like move the church at all. And I couldn't tell at all. Oh. It's it's a really cool looking shot when you know that. Because mm-hmm. I do remember thinking the church looked kind of small, not like the wrong scale, but it was like a very small building. Oh, I think like I for, over for that, a church, but, but I got to go back and look. Yeah, really cool shot. Nice little things like that. This is um, I like to I like black and white movies. I, I kind of like all oh, color, black and white, whatever. Um, but this. This one like really took me aback, like how good this looked. Even like the aspect ratio is not one we see a lot anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, it's closer to a full frame. Yeah, so many times I was like, I just want to like draw this movie. Like I just <laughs> draw like these like spot blacks and grays. You know, like it really like I really had that kind of effect on me. I was like, man, like pe- mm-hmm. people talk about the cinematography of this movie is no joke. Yeah. And just like the costumes and everything are very cool looking, apparently a lot of the imagery and stuff. So, you know, I don't know much about Ingmar Bergman. What I know about him, I've read in the last uh, couple of days. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the only one of his films I've ever seen. But apparently he grew up with like a very strictly religious father who was like in the clergy. And he took a lot of the imagery from like the church that he spent a lot of time in with his father as a child. And I guess uh, while historians say that his take on the time period isn't all that accurate, I wouldn't know how or why, because I am not a historian Mm -hmm. in the least, but apparently like uh, visual representation of the time is very, very accurate. Mm, Okay. Yeah, which I was like, kind of find myself being interested with all the talk of the plague and everything, mm-hmm. which is even that. You know, it's funny as I was watching this, I was like, man, we watched a lot of like medieval stuff on Triple Threat. Well, yeah, it wasn't that long ago we watched Flesh and Blood, and uh, that movie dealt a lot with the plague as well. Yeah, big time. So because it it's funny, like in that movie, I don't know if this like in Flesh and Blood, it was like a religious thing where like they wouldn't pop the boils that they got from the plague because it was like against God or something. Uh But then someone like talked one of the doctors into popping the boils and then it like significantly improved people's uh, conditions. Mm. And so I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself, you just got to pop them boils, man. (laughs) Someone mentions like someone like ripping the boils out by the stem or whatever. And I was like, Oh yeah. And like scratching their veins open. Makes my skin crawl. (laughs) Yeah, that was right at the beginning in the church, but uh, yeah. Came in. Another cool little thing that I read about it at the end that I never would have known is uh, the that like final shot of the group of people being led hand by hand on top of the hill. Yep. Apparently that was reshot because at the last second, Ingmar Bergman loved the look of this cloud that was behind the hill. Mm. And all the actors were done for the day, so he just had a bunch of like crew and a couple of people who were visiting the set 
throw oh, on the no costumes way. and run up on top of the hill real fast so they could get them running in front of the cloud. Oh, that's funny. So one of the like most beloved movies of all time yeah. just has like a couple of random civilians who happen to stop by the set that day. In random the movie. extras and food service people. Yeah, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I I don't feel that I really have the ability to get too deep into the meaning behind the film, but one thing that I didn't necessarily catch when I was watching it and, you know, reading about the film afterward, someone brought it up and I thought it was a neat concept, is that in the beginning when the knight... Uh, the Max von Sydow character is giving his confession, not realizing it's to death. He basically says that uh, he wants to do like one good deed before Mm -hmm. he dies. And so that's why he's trying to extend his life with the game of chess. Right. And then uh, at the end of the film, the last time that they're playing chess when they're in the woods and uh, is it Joff was the name of the, uh, the actor who somehow can see like visions and dead people and stuff. Yep. Yep. (laughs) During that scene, I guess, uh, I, I didn't really catch this the first time through watching it, but death insinuates that, uh, if he wins the game, the next time he sees the night, everybody with him is going to die. And you see Joff run off with his wife and kid because he sees death and is freaked out by it. Mm -hmm. And then that's when Max von Sydow's character, like knocks over the chess pieces, which I assumed was just him trying to, he he saw the writing on the wall that he was going to lose and he was trying to extend his time even more. But I guess the reasoning there was supposed to be, he was distracting death so that he didn't realize that the other people who he was potentially going to take were running away. Oh, okay. And so that was his good deed that he achieved. And mm. then he was like prepared to die because he knew it was coming anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Because I yeah. was like, I wasn't, I was unsure of when he said about his his deed, what he was talking about exactly. Yeah, it seemed like a weird petty thing to me when, since I didn't realize why he was knocking the yeah, pieces over totally. in the movie. I was like, that doesn't seem like his character. Right. But then when when you realize the context yeah. behind it, it's the same as which I pose. totally missed. <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I thought oh, it was he, pretty cool. I was like, oh, he's pissed, poor sport, not thinking <laughs> he's saving someone's life. Yeah, but I mean, he should be allowed to cheat since death was uh, getting sneaky information from him, pretending to be a priest. That is true. <laughs> Death, death's a sneaky bastard. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, Mills, death always wins. That's, well, that's what true. I t- That's what I took away from this. I would say that that's definitely a theme of the movie as well. Uh-huh. But yeah. All in all, yeah, not, not what I was expecting, but uh, yeah. after a little bit of a rocky start, I did end up enjoying it. Not yeah. a movie that I think I necessarily need to own on Criterion, mm-hmm. maybe at 50% off someday, because, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, I got to catch them all. That's true. I mean, just to even hear you try to say that you don't need to own something, when there is <laughs> when there is a special edition of it out, I was like, oh, that, that'll change quick. <laughs> but at this point, you know, I am just happy to say that I've finally seen it, because I can totally. scratch it off the old bucket list now. Uh, is this the oldest movie we've watched on Triple Threat? Hmm... Probably. I mean, I'd have to consult the uh, the tomes and see. Uh, I'm very quickly scrolling quickly. through a list here. As am I, and I'm pretty sure we haven't. 
is this the first time we've dipped past the 70s back in time? Sure. I think it might be. I think so. I think maybe like the oldest movie we've watched. Oh, what, wait. When did Towering Inferno come out? That was the 60s. It had to be, right? Or was that the 70s? <sighs> that was like early 70s, I think. Okay. That's probably the oldest movie we watched before now. Well, there we go. Look at us, Mills. Branching mm-hmm. out. It's uh, not just all 80s B movies here, people. <laughs> yeah, every now and then we'll talk about something that we're not qualified to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so anything else to say about no. Seventh Seal before we move on? No, let's let's hit it. All right. Next up, the aforementioned parody slash homage, mm. uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. So, something from, now for something different <laughs> from 1991 a little more in our wheelhouse mm-hmm. whoa who are you Ted it's the grim reaper dude oh how's it hanging death you will come with me no we can't we gotta get back to the babes. Ted, we can't. We're dead, dude. We gotta stop those evil us's. We gotta try. Excuse us, dude. But is there any way back? You may challenge me to a contest. But if you lose, you will remain here in the afterlife forever. What if we win? <laughs> no one has ever won. Dude, we gotta ditch this guy. Definitely. But how? Melvin. Uh, the original title for this was supposed to be Bill and Ted Go to Hell, but apparently that was deemed too risque at the time in 1991. Mm. Because, you know, uh, we didn't have South Park yet uh, demoralizing everyone. and That's true. Uh, the Simpsons hadn't completely taken over the world, so yep. hell was still a no-no. I mean, it could have all aspects of it in the movie. Just don't don't mm-hmm. call it that, whatever you do. So you said, as the, the same with me, you'd never seen Bogus Journey before, to your knowledge. Correct. But you had seen Excellent Adventure, yes. the first film. Mm-hmm. Just in general... Like, how? what are your feelings on Bill and Ted before this movie, after this movie? Like, were you a fan? I wouldn't say I was necessarily a fan, just because I think the first one came out in, like, 89 or 90, because this one was 91. Um, so that would put me pretty young. And it wasn't, like I said, pretty sure I never saw this one. The first one seems a little more memorable, but... If I've seen it more than like two or three times, I'd be surprised. Mm-hmm. I should just revisit it just so I can kind of clue in a little. I have seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure exactly once. Mm. Uh, it was maybe like five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it was never one that I felt like I had to catch up with, but I caught it on TV one day. Yeah. And, um, you know, not to you know, completely disparage the time-honored franchise, but uh, not the biggest Bill and Ted fan, Yeah, personally. Yeah, not a thing I would consider. Going into watching this, 
I will say, I was expecting the two of them to aggravate the shit out of me a lot more than they did end up. See, in this one, I do feel like they kind of aggravated the shit out of me a bit. Like, yeah, you have other characters who were just like one liner machine, like goofy characters that I like because I watched them all the time in my youth, probably like Austin Powers or Ace Ventura and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But these guys, you know, I understand the humor and, you know, there is funny stuff in here. And I like I feel like I like them in concept more than execution. But man partway through this movie with like the robots acting like them and them acting like them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was getting like so tired of just their like, what would be, I guess it's like surfer talk, like almost Uh, like the male version of a Valley girl. Like, well, you know, that is interesting. You say that because again, it never like bottomed out for me where I was like annoyed by them. I was expecting it to be worse, but I did find myself a couple times being like, I can't tell if they're supposed to be like metalheads or stoner burnouts or I don't get the impression that they're stoners, but it's almost like, again, to try and kind of connect it to the Valley Girl thing, like that didn't have anything to do with like a specific activity or anything. It's just like that was the way that a lot of young girls talked in like mm-hmm. a certain region during a certain time period. It's just like a thing that seemed to happen right? in a certain time and, and place. And almost like like grunge just all of a sudden took over for like a decade. Right. Uh, it feels like whatever these guys are, it feels like some kind of combination of like slacker, metalhead, surfer. Not that they surf, but it feels like yeah. it has a little bit of that in there. Well, yeah, it's like Just that like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's weird because it's like they... S- they don't surf, but they sound like it. Then, like, they have like a kind of a metalhead aspect, but it, they're all—they're not like necessarily dressed that way either. It's weird. There's like a weird gray area, which it's I'm like not... proto grunge or something. But yeah, because it's almost just like because it was—it om- almost felt like hair metal, but with a look of grunge, and it's wrapped up in a surfer dude. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever thought this much into Bill and Ted. <laughs> All I can say, though, is I don't really remember my full feelings about the first movie because it wasn't like a super memorable experience to me. But yeah, like this this film is like a nonstop all out assault on your senses, just like crazy visuals, constantly shifting plot lines like just wild shit coming everywhere. There's like Mm -hmm. time travel and they go to hell and (laughs) they're like experiencing like uh, their own personal hells and they go to heaven at one point and it's just like they're dead for a while and they're like kind of blue glowy people and there's evil robot versions of them and then there's like aliens and they build like cobbled together good robot versions of them and it's just there's so much going on that I just like it was like sensory overload, and after a while I was just like, God, when is this gonna end? <laughs> like I didn't hate the movie necessarily, but I I was just like annoyed by it after yeah. a while. I never found myself being annoyed, but just quickly and easily just being like, this is so stupid. <laughs> but it's supposed to be. 
Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. And yeah. I imagine that if you are on board with Bill and Ted, that that's like it totally works yeah, or whatever. that's what you're there for. But uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I just, I, I couldn't handle it after a while. <laughs> mm. I could see them just like, you know, coming back for a sequel and not just like traveling through time and plucking people out of the time stream. Well, so the original premise for the sequel did sound like just an exact copy of the right. first one, except instead of like a like a history class, mm-hmm. it was going to be uh, like an English class, and they were going to somehow travel into famous like books, like Romeo and Juliet and stuff, or like stories. Mm. Okay, and I guess they scrapped that because they decided it was just too much the same exact thing again. Yeah. Which, but I mean, see, I could see that being the right decision, you know. The- mm-hmm. Like, you know, the Twitter day and age, if that was all coming out now, people would be trashing it left and right, you know? Yeah. So I do, I mean, they definitely took like a crazy right turn when it's trying to go from like, let's not do the same thing. Let's try something different. All right, we'll have uh, robot doppelgangers from the future, throw them off a cliff, <laughs> have them go to hell, you know? And I, I like the robots. I think they're cool looking. I think yeah. it's funny that the villain is like an uptight jerkwad. Mm-hmm. who designs these robots who then annoy the shit out of him. Like, I think that's a funny idea. Yeah. I love any time the robots, like, rip their skin open and you see, like, oh, their metal parts oh, and their robot so heads. I mean... Yeah, it looks really cool. There's there's some good practical effects stuff in this, for sure. Mm-hmm. I dig the idea of Bill and Ted dying and going to hell. Yep. Just, yeah, after a while, it is just... One thing after another, after another, after another, and it's just like it gets crazier and crazier, and it never lets up. And yeah. well, that was, you know, when you think it's just like, like how are they going to get out of hell? And then it turns into like, well, they're going to go to heaven, and God's going to introduce them to some Martians. Call wait, what were they called again, Mills? Uh, the station. station. Yeah, which is just a weird decision, and they. You know, they can meld together and become another giant alien, which I wasn't a fan of the look of that at all. You know, <laughs> yeah. the creature of design, but whatever. Yeah, and then they make a couple good robots, which are kind of a good gag. Yeah, I like the look of the good robots, uh-huh. how, like, they were pieced together from things, and you could see parts from everyday appliances and all on them. And mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's a fun time, 1991, with the... There's some bogus uh, computer effects they try to pull off in this movie, but <laughs> there are yeah. some there's some good practical stuff. So, and like that. I thought it was funny the scene where similar to the Seventh Seal, uh, in order to come back to life, they challenge death to a game, and the first game they play is Battleship, and they beat him. And he talks about how like no one's ever beaten him in a game, and they beat him in Battleship, and then he's like best two out of three, and then they beat him in something that like clue and then he's like best three out of five and then they beat him in something else and finally they beat him at twister and he's like oh fine you win yeah like i thought that was funny that was a funny idea yeah that was good because the the clue bit was good and Mm -hmm. bill sadler was like kind of eating it up which i liked and i didn't know he was in this but the minute he appeared on screen because i can't even tell looking at him in the poster Mm. But the minute he was on screen, I recognized yeah, him. Yeah, I knew for whatever reason, even though not actually seeing the thing, I knew it was him. And then you saw him when he was just a normal guy later on, too, right? Yeah, he played a cameo as just like a British dad. Yeah, sounds cool. But one thing I will say is, um, you know, 
all things considered, the production design throughout this movie I love. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of it is really stupid looking, but yes. I think on purpose, like, the future outfits they wear, like, at the Bill and Ted University in yeah, the future. they're the worst. Everything looks like their outfits are made out of pool noodles, and it looks, like, really shitty, but at the same time, you know they did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. There's a couple cool bits. I think it's when they're it's when they're in hell and they're like locked up and it's almost like that cell room that has the bunk beds, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you know that part? Yeah. And uh, that was cool because I was like, oh, that's all. You know, someone had to build that room. You could see like the matte painting at the end that made it look like it extended all the way down for, you know, 100 mm-hmm. yards. Yeah, I liked the look of all the stuff in hell, like all the crazy hallways that they're running mm-hmm. through. And mm-hmm. they do that thing, which... I feel like you never see anymore, but uh, like old Tim Burton movies, like Beetlejuice used to do it, like when they were in the afterlife or whatever. And it's, they want everything to seem unusual. So like doors aren't perfect rectangles. They've got like weird angles on them. And then if you look at like the molding, like somebody actually took the time to make all that shit look like it's a real functional door. That's just a fucked up crazy shape that would be annoying as hell to build mm-hmm. um and or like tables are it. weird angles and yeah. so like all that stuff is really cool and i love the look of it i love the look of everything i like the way heaven looks and the way everyone's dressed in heaven mm-hmm. again i like the look of the good bill and ted robots that the alien builds at the end not like you crazy about the look of the aliens but yeah the martians but uh yeah, a lot of cool visuals in the movie. Just at some point, it did just feel like rambunctious kids hopped up on pixie sticks screaming in my ears <laughs> and like shining flashlights in my eyes or Get something. Get off my lawn. Just it was a lot to take in. Maybe it yeah. was the mood I was in when I watched it or something. But mm-hmm. by the hour mark, I was like, all right, let's fucking get to the end here. And, and then they finally get to the Battle of the Bands at the end, and it's one of those scenes where it just goes on and on and on and on because they, 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 the villain, main villain comes back in time because uh, his minions didn't do the job correctly, and then it's like Bill and Ted have the upper hand, and then he has the upper hand, right. and then they actually have the upper hand, and then they win, and they still have to have a fucking concert where all the robots are <laughs> dancing and shit, and I'm just like, end already, end. Yeah, I like that bit where they're like no see we went back and we changed your gun into our gun or whatever you mm-hmm. know like that was that's the part i'm talking about it just yeah. kept that real time bit and I don't know. going yeah. and i was over it already at that point yeah so yeah there's just no enjoyment to be found at that point you're just like please just cue yeah. the credits so like while i'm not ready to say that like i hated this movie or mm-hmm. like i was miserable while watching it the whole time or anything it was just yeah, I don't know. It wasn't the most satisfying, pleasurable experience for me watching this one. It was not, in fact, your jam. Yeah. But uh, I'll say, as far as the uh, the production value that I did mention that I liked goes, uh, this movie had almost four times the budget of the first one. Oh, no way. Oh, the first yeah. movie cost like $6.6 million or something to make. This one was $20 million mm-hmm. budget. And the first one grossed like 40 mil in the box office, and this one was 38. So I had it in my mind that this movie was like the redheaded stepchild. Nobody liked it, and it didn't perform, but that's apparently not true. Yeah, I mean, it didn't 
I mean, it, it lost them more money, so I'm sure they look at it that way. But Yeah, but I mean, that's just the inflated budget. I sure. mean, the movie performed exactly like the first one mm-hmm. did, pretty mm-hmm. much. So. so, yeah. Whoever was into it the first time around, probably the yeah. same amount of people were the second time around. But, uh, you know, I was doing a little bit of reading. This movie was put out by Orion Films, and there is a long and storied history behind Orion Films, if you want to go on Wikipedia and read about them. I do. So, like... Man, it's just crazy reading about them. Like they had a lot of movies that flopped and made like less than ten million dollars in the box office, but then they would have like an amazing year where they have like RoboCop, and then not too long after that, Dances with Wolves comes out, and they had a couple of movies win like uh, Best Picture Oscars, but then they had so many failures throughout the year that like those couple of wins couldn't keep them afloat. And so around 1991, when this movie was coming out the company was about to go into bankruptcy and they were selling off all of their properties. So like the Adams family live action movie that came out in the nineties was an Orion film, but they sold it to some other company just because they needed capital. And like one of the only movies they held on to because they had faith in it based on how the first one performed was Bill and Ted bogus journey. And uh, I guess Considering the budget that they put into it, they would have liked a bigger return on investment, but they pretty much got the same box office that the first one did. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff to read in that Wikipedia article, Mm, by the way. Yeah, I gotta check that out. Duly noted. (laughs) Did you recognize Chuck Denomalos, the actor who played him? You know, I thought I did, but I can't quite place it. If I were to say the words diplomatic immunity, would that uh, ring any bells? Of course. <laughs> diplomatic immunity. Bitch. Is that Lethal Weapon 2? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's been in a thousand things. Most of them I haven't heard of, honestly. But he's been in some recognizable stuff, like he was in the Mighty Ducks movies. Was he a villain? I don't remember, honestly. But I, 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 he was in at least the first one and the third one from what I was reading. It's been so long since I've seen those, like literally since I was a kid. But uh, not super long ago, around Halloween time on the Sidetracked podcast, Jesse and I reviewed a like 1990 made-for-TV British version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that starred Michael Caine. Mm. And Joss Ackland was in that. And I remember thinking like, man, I haven't seen him in like anything except Lethal Weapon 2. And he's really good in it. <laughs> he makes a great bad guy. Yeah, totally. Oh, uh, Millsy, we can't forget the girl of your dreams. Pam Greer's in this movie. I know, man. I was surprised. Like I, I'm watching it and I'm thinking to myself, I don't remember the first Bill and Ted. Was she in that one too? Because all the time travel stuff, like it's going back to the same battle of the bands from the first movie. Yeah, I have no idea. But yeah, Pam in a kind of small role. Yeah, that was cool. This is the really lacking the uh, George Carlin in this one. Yeah, I wonder what the story is there because he's not in it much. It's like basically the very beginning and the very end. Yeah, it seems like with his, was it too much to just add him in to their uh, exploits? I'm almost wondering if he was busy with something else or if he didn't want to be bothered the second time around or something. So they just kind of stuck him in a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Like one of those things where he was like, oh, I'll I'll, I'll be on set for three days or something, but that's it. But yeah, I don't I was, know. I was kind of bummed. I was waiting for him to show up more. But Apparently an early version of the script, he was going to be the villain of the movie. Oh. 
don't ask me how that was going to work. But apparently this is one of those things that they had like seven different ideas before they finally settled on one. Yeah, looks like it's got four writers or so, so you never know. Yeah. Uh, the main two writers are the same guys who created Bill and Ted and wrote the first film, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. Do you know what is an interesting tidbit related to this show about Chris Matheson? Oh, man. I wish I knew, but I don't. He is the son of Richard Matheson, who wrote the book I Am Legend oh. that the Omega Man was based on that Look we that. talked about not long ago. We need like so, some we need some like AI something or other, or like uh at the very least, like one of those interns that works for Sports Center that can like pull up all the uh stats and stuff. Just like a giant web graph connecting all of the people yeah, in the movies. Yeah, that's the like, type of stuff I'd love to know. Like, oh, you guys, are, this is the 14th movie you've watched that took place between 72 and 79 or whatever. <laughs> I just think it's amazing that, like, Richard Matheson, classic sci-fi writer, mm -hmm. wrote I Am Legend, which has had, like, four movie adaptations, <laughs> yeah, yeah. among other things. His son created Bill and Ted. Like, how incredible is that? I'm going to step outside your shadow, Dad. <laughs> also, uh, so him, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon also co-created and co-wrote Mom and Dad Save the World. <laughs> I feel like I should know what that is, but I don't. I've never seen that movie, but I remember seeing, like, the VHS box at uh, the rental Ooh. places all the time. Come up and, with uh, trifecta for Mom and Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, the thing that really rang true to me, though, Chris Matheson was one of the three writers on a Goofy movie, which is an all-time oh, favorite boy. of mine. I mean, I'm not knocking that movie because I've never seen it. I'm not entirely sure I'd ever heard of it before you told me how much you love it. But man, I never would have guessed that's one of your top movies. I love that fucking movie. Yeah. We're getting that in a trifecta somehow. If it has to be like three animated movies that Ryan loves and no one else ever watched, oh. then that'll be it. But All right. Make it happen, Captain. And then his uh, co-writer and co-creator of Bill and Ted, Ed Solomon, gave us the Super Mario Brothers movie, mm. Men in Black. Cheers. Charlie's Angels, the uh, McG version. And then the more recent horrible-looking Now You See Me movies. Ah, plot thickens. Mm -hmm. Are you excited for Bill and Ted Three? Uh, not particularly, because again, I I don't I'm not a huge fan of Bill and Ted mm -hmm. in general. Like I like the idea of them more than I like them in practice. Kind of like, and I know that this is probably gonna piss a lot of people off, but Wayne's World, I feel the same way. Mm. Just one that I didn't watch when I was younger, not super into, don't find them all that funny, and like all of their taglines and one-liners and like schwing and shit like that doesn't really, it has no special place for me, mm. because I was busy watching like Ace Ventura and saying alrighty then instead. <laughs> I'll say when it comes to like the music aspect of these movies, Bill and Ted are no Wayne and Garth, and all of them, none of them are. As good as the airheads. I was about to say, of all of the like kind of, you know, like rocker, metalhead comedy mm -hmm. movies from like the early 90s, airheads would probably be my favorite. Yeah, my man. <laughs> I just got to watch that for fun sometime. I love airheads. Yeah, man. You got, uh, you got Chris Farley in there. You got Kramer in there. You got Adam Sandler, mm -hmm. Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Brendan Fraser. 
All day. Amen. That's a great <laughs> that's a great movie. We gotta find a way to watch that one. Yeah. I mean, I guess the perfect thing would be Bill and Ted, Wayne's World, and Airheads. But well, Mills. <laughs> we talk about showing how the sausage is made. <laughs> I think we just did it. All right, write it down. We'll add it to the list. <laughs> All right, anything else for uh, Bill and Ted before we move on? No, sir. Third and final film, Meet Joe Black from 1998. Yes. It's uh, Laura Scudder's peanut butter, sir. You like it? Well, I would say, in my opinion, it's right up there with Jiff and Skippy. Could I offer you a taste, sir? Yes. Peanut butter man now, eh, sir? Yes, I believe I am. I thoroughly enjoyed this peanut butter. And I thoroughly enjoyed meeting you all. I'll be mojing on. Right, sir. And this is one, you know, I had obviously seen uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, so I kind of knew what I was in for with Bogus Journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we discussed at length, we both had preconceived notions of what the seventh seal was and was going to be. Uh, this one, all I could have told you about it was that it starred Brad Pitt as death, mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins as I could have guessed, like an older guy that death had come for. And that I had seen the video on YouTube before of Brad Pitt getting hit by two cars. (laughs) I knew nothing else about this. I didn't know anyone else involved. I had no idea it was going to be three hours. Millsy, who allowed this movie to be three hours long? Uh, I don't remember the studio who made this, but Martin Brest, director of Scent of a Woman, which we also watched not super long ago. Why is this movie three hours long? Uh, I don't know, but I can tell you that, uh, when it came out, uh, there was a, the studio trimmed it down and made a two hour version to air on TV and on, uh, like airline flights. Mm -hmm. 
And Martin Brest was so pissed off that that version of the movie, he forced them to remove his name as director and replace it with Alan Smithy. <laughs> yes. Which, are you familiar with Alan Smithy? I've heard that, like, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, uh, urban legend or... Oh, it's not an urban legend. Uh, there are a couple movies out there directed by Alan Smithy who mm-hmm. doesn't exist mm. because there are certain cases where either a director is fired from a movie late in the game or wants their name taken off of a project mm-hmm. and Alan Smithy is the mm-hmm. name that gets it. put onto those films. So yeah. there's like eight or nine movies out there directed by Alan Smithy who doesn't oh. really exist. Hold on. Alan Smithy. Oh God. I don't know if I <laughs> I don't know if I can handle three movies that are so bad that the directors <laughs> didn't want to be involved with them. <laughs> I don't know I, I'd be curious to see like what the hours they cut out. All that I read was that apparently they took out a lot of the storyline about uh, Anthony Hopkins' character's business, which seems like it'd be hard to do because that's the backbone of the whole like the that betrayal final, at the end yeah, with the, final the younger guy. Is... Yeah, so I don't know. Hmm. Well, Milsey, this movie, Death who takes the form of a young man, asks a media mogul to act as a guide to teach him about life on Earth. In the process, he falls in love with the guide's daughter. Yeah, so I'll say, now that we've got that premise, because mm-hmm. I didn't know that's what this movie was going in, late 90s, uh, big budget, kind of a schmaltzy romance drama, big name actors, Brad Pitt, Anthony Hopkins, just a look and a feel and an era of movies that I really love. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, you know, I always watched a lot of movies when I was a kid or whatever, but I feel like the era where I really started to like become like a, like a movie buff would have been like late nineties with my family's VHS collection, which I would sit and organize like I do with my Blu-rays now. Uh, yes. And just like movies from this time period that have that look and feel of like a, a big budget 90s blockbustery kind of movie. Mm-hmm. I love the tone of this movie and the feel of it. And there's like scenes I really love. Mm. You love Claire Forlani brushing her hair behind her ear. I do, honestly. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. But man, there are some conceptual things that really gnaw at me <laughs> when I'm oh, watching this movie. Please, let's get into it. Well, first off, death. Death mm-hmm. comes to Earth in a human body. Wants to party, basically. Wants to be shown around. Like, okay, that's fine. Death wants to experience what it's like to walk around as a man. Mm-hmm. But it's like, so death is in charge of people dying on Earth. He's been doing it for untold thousands of years or, you know, millennia, right. whatever. Mm-hmm. However you want to perceive it. But... Death does has isn't familiar with the the phrase death and taxes yeah. like or little things butter. like that like the fact that death it, it he feels like he's from another planet not that he like like death's whole thing would presumably be to like watch over Earth and yeah. like you'd think he would be extremely familiar with oh 
society and mankind, but he acts like like he doesn't know what peanut butter is. How's that fucking possible? It it, it more so than anything, it feels like death should be well versed in the ways of man. Yeah, exactly. Like if he wants to come and be shown a good time or something, I get it. Yeah. But it's like he came to Earth to be like, you know what? I've been taking all you people to the afterlife for hundreds of thousands of years or whatever, like across different galaxies and whatnot. But I, I, I don't understand what food is. I, <laughs> I don't understand how to act like a human, even though I've had like tons of interaction with you. Like it just, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. It feels like two separate concepts for a movie. Totally. It almost, it's like Encino man, like Brendan Fraser was a caveman. So he looks like a person, but he comes to the modern times and he doesn't understand society because he's been frozen. I get it. But death, yeah. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's like, so death doesn't know what peanut butter is. Um, doesn't know seemingly what a necktie is or how to tie one. Yeah. But oh, and that speak- opened a lot of weird doors, too. Yeah. but Because then- it's like his hair is always perfect. Right. But like he wakes up in the morning and doesn't know how to tie a tie, but like who's doing his hair? Right. Or like how you'd say he must be listening to people a lot if he can has the perfect like Jamaican accent and conversation oh, with someone. Boy. If I had to delete anything from the yeah. movie, that's I mean, what I would delete. <laughs> for sure. And there's a, there's far too much of it. Yeah. Yeah. It should just be cut out. Because it's bad and problematic, but if he can, why can he do that? They see you know, like I know. Kind of depends movie to movie how crazy I get with about like rules and if they're set or not. And I know that's a thing that you'll latch on to as well. Mm-hmm. This movie is fast and loose with any kind of rules. Yeah, and I understand that the kind of movie it is and the audience that it's trying to appeal sure. to. It's just, it's more concerned with like the drama and Mm -hmm. like the romance and the corporate espionage and like the moral fiber of a man's being who is faced with his own mortality. Mm -hmm. But, and all, all that stuff I, I like, I enjoy, I don't know if I needed three hours of it, but I was into, but yeah, there's just so many things that had me scratching my head. Like, yeah, why is death acting like, uh, eight-year-old in an adult's body i Mm -hmm. just i don't understand yeah totally i mean it's just not it was just he i don't know if it's Brad pitt's fault or the script or what but it's just it just doesn't it didn't feel like an interesting take he seemed like too creepy almost and then too much of it was just like you know, where are the people in the background, like the sister or the other husband that are like, who the hell is this guy? What is he saying? What is going on? You know? Yeah. Like they just let too much of it go because it's a movie and that stuff always like wears on me. Mm-hmm. So over yeah, the course like, of three hours, it certainly weared on me. Like uh, the only person aside from sort of Claire Forlani, because her character had met Brad Pitt before he died. Mm-hmm. So it's like a little shocking when she sees him again in her house uh, or in her dad's house. But the only person who questions any of this is the bad guy of the movie. And it's a case where like, you know, the bad guy seems like he's scheming. Like before we even find out that uh, he was actually 
an evil guy behind the scenes the whole time as like a plant, which feels like it's going a little too far. Mm-hmm. I was fine with him just being like the next in line, like yeah. buddying up to the big guy at the company so that he could take over when he inevitably leaves and like trying to get in on his daughter and everything. Like mm-hmm. that's fine and like jerky enough. But when he is like having the secret meeting and talking to them about like, Maybe it's time we consider that our boss is not in his right mind and we may want to take over the company. And everyone's treating him like you're the bad guy now. It made 100% logical sense. He was the only one who was thinking clearly because, yeah, I mean, Brad Pitt comes out of nowhere. Uh, Anthony Hopkins will not tell anybody who he is or why he's Mm -hmm. there. He's with him all the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, is someone not going to just speak up and be like, who is this guy with the cookies? Like, is this your son? Is, you know, is this your boyfriend? Like, what's going on? Like, no, you know, yeah. assume this is like a multi-billion dollar company mm-hmm. by the way it's played. Yeah, so it just, that like aggravated me. And even like for Claire Forlani to be like, dude, I just hung out with you all morning in a coffee shop. Now you're being like a fucking weirdo. Like, yeah, but she still on? manages to fall in love with him, even though he's not the super nice, likable guy that yeah. he was in the beginning. Yeah, it's like she's feel- met his identical twin who acts like a fucking weirdo because he's been in a coma for 20 years. And yeah. she still falls in love with him, even though he's nothing like the person she nothing. fell in love with before. Yeah, he has no personality. Like he never like he doesn't change. There's no arc for him over the course of the thing. Yeah, I mean, they try and do one a little bit at the end where it's like death, I guess, because he's like an ethereal being who can do whatever he wants. He thinks, oh, I'm fond of this girl, so I'm going to take her from the mortal plane just because Mm. I want her. And then he has like a change of heart and is like, no, I'll leave this woman in her life instead of like killing her and taking her with me. But but even then, that happens on like, you know, within five minutes where it would make more sense if he started out like, oh. I want to come to earth, come to earth and take whatever I want with me. And then over the course of the movie, he changes, but no, yeah. he just it happens right like, at the end, right at the end within minutes. It's like, no, I'm taking her. He's like, Oh no, I changed my mind. You know, it's- and even, even the concept again, going back to the fact that death seems like he's never seen earth before when his job is to take humans from the mortal plane. Like just the fact that death falls in love and has a sex scene mm-hmm. and is like heartbroken over whether he should like take this woman's life so she can be with him in the afterlife and what that even means. Can he make her like an immortal, yeah. like bodiless being right. of energy or whatever the fuck he actually is. And right, there's like, just doors that they open that feel like they were not prepared to explore. Right. Like what, what is their life together since it's not, like walking the earth without people seeing them. Otherwise he would know what fucking peanut butter is. Or what <laughs> yeah. a so it's not that. So yeah, what is it? There's just no. And like, if he explains in the beginning of the movie, uh, cause in a scene that's very much just for the audience to explain one of the 700 things that doesn't make sense. Anthony Hopkins asks Brad Pitt as they're walking on the street. Like, so if you're here, like, mm-hmm. are you not out there still doing your job and like taking people dead people from the earth and he explains like oh it's like in the morning you're shaving but you're thinking about like your job like i can do two things at once but like if he can if he doesn't have to be like up in 
heaven or purgatory or wherever the fuck he is all the time when he's not in a human body, mm-hmm. could he not just stay on earth and be with her and just like yeah. be a person and just in the back of his mind, he's right. like taking people. Mm-hmm. Cause like, so this movie is a, it's like a pseudo remake of a film from 1934 called death takes a holiday. And I was reading a little bit about that movie and I like the premise better in that movie where I'm actually curious to see it now. Uh, the idea is death decides he wants to know what it's like to live as a human for a little while. So he comes to earth just like in this movie, but when he's on earth, nobody dies. Mm. Like for the couple days that he's on earth, just nobody dies in those couple of days. And like, what a cool kind of weird concept that would be. Yeah. It feels like they just wrote themselves a jail, a get out of jail free card mm-hmm. with that little conversation in the beginning of this film. But yeah, I mean, I liked that bit, at least of some kind of explanation of how things work somewhat, mm-hmm. but this movie just feels like endless scenes of like establishing rules for that scene only. Just think about, how much better I'm just this is the coming to me now as I'm thinking about it if this movie was a little less self-serious and if it was like I'm almost thinking like a a comedy drama directed by Harold Ramis or something like that mm-hmm. like where death comes to earth and it's like death is here for a couple of days and he falls in love with this girl and he wants to stay and be with her but there's a reason he can't stay and that's that as long as he's here he can't do his job and no one dies. And it's like, as the film goes on, like people start to realize nobody's dying. And it's like this big thing on the news in the background, like, Oh my God, nobody's dying. What's going on. This is like Mm. a weird, incredible thing. And like, so there's a timeline on death, like having to leave. Otherwise he's going to like completely fuck up his job. And like the, the terror of like, Oh, but I've learned what it's like to be a human and I'm in love. Like that would be a better story. Honestly, to me. Yeah than what this movie is. Absolutely. You just nailed it. Yeah. Like this is... And maybe that's what the original movie premise is. I don't know, because I didn't read the full synopsis, but... I mean, this movie is joyless, I think. Maybe until... Except at the very end, I guess. But he... I mean... his, His lack of personality or change or growth throughout the whole thing. Yeah, for sure, Brad Pitt is my least favorite part of the movie, his character, his performance, honestly. Yeah. I really dig the family. Like, uh, obviously, Claire Forlani, Anthony Hopkins, their dynamic. Uh, the Marsha Gay Harden and Jeffrey Tambor characters I really like. You know, Mar- I actually liked Marsha Gay Harden a lot in this because it, it's she seemed like a little... She gets played, like, harder than mm-hmm. she was in this. It was actually a nice bit... Of when he when she's talking to Anthony Hopkins towards the end, I think it's towards the end about you know like the difference between her and her sister. Yeah, that's like, right before the party at the yeah, end. That was like a good bit of writing. Like I enjoyed yeah. that bit. You know, I also enjoyed like Jeffrey Tambor, just like kind of the look of him and his mustache, and he's obviously working for the company, but nobody fully respects him. It feels like he could just be like kind of under her thumb as well or something mm-hmm. like she just treats him like oh shut up husband or whatever <laughs> right. or whatever his name is right but like in the scene where anthony hopkins is like kind of dissing her cake choices and she starts crying at the dinner table and then she is actually like consoled by quince who actually is a nice guy like mm-hmm. 
I liked that. Di- I liked the whole yeah. family dynamic and everything. Like all the stuff not about Brad Pitt being death, I actually really liked. And it just gave me this like kind of warm, fuzzy, comfortable feeling of that like late 90s big budget mm-hmm. drama that I was talking about. Millsy, let's workshop something here a little bit. Uh-huh. Because I couldn't help feeling like this during while I was watching it. Partly in the end, just because it's so long, I was like, "Do you think there is like an edit to this movie that maybe like leaves out the Grim Reaper reveal till the end?" Ooh. I mean, the tough thing. I mean, this would be is... like a thing like you sit down in an editing bay and like have to put in some work. Because so I think you, you'd end up cutting out a lot of Anthony Hopkins stuff. Well, not well, him this, necessarily. This was going to be my question. Does Anthony Hopkins, the, his character in the movie, Will Perish, does he not find out until the end that it's death? Or does the audience not find I out? Think the and audience. the whole time we're wondering why he's letting uh, Brad Pitt yeah. hang around. I think the I think it has to be the audience because there's too much interaction between the two of them to just mm-hmm. take it out for him. But if you cut out, like... Because if it just kind of goes to from Brad Pitt getting like boondoggled by those cars and then he just shows up like a different at person. the house and you have like the same reaction Claire Forlani has. Like maybe because maybe the movie, you know how he's opens and he's like, think, it looks like he's kind of having a heart attack or something mm-hmm. when he wakes up in bed and he has like those kind of couple of instances. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, do you just get just that without the. The hearing the voices or I think that's a good idea. Honestly. Maybe even still hearing the voice. I'm not exactly sure, but I feel like if there's I feel like in there, in the three hours of movie, not even saying you have to cut it down to two hours, but a little moving and shaking and cutting. I and think you could definitely cut this down to two hours and fifteen minutes and make that change you just suggested and it would be more interesting. Yeah. It would be I think so. Like, I, I think that could be a better movie because, again, the only thing that I really liked about this movie is just like the straight family drama, which is not reliant upon the premise at all. Correct. Because I think like imagine if you're watching this whole movie and the whole time you're just like, dude, who is this guy? What happened to him? Did he, you know, was he in a, did he have a, like a traumatic brain injury? Like what's going on? But then like towards the end when he's talking to Anthony Hopkins, like it's almost time. So it's going to be just me and you like. And then somehow you get in there that it's, you know, this is the Grim Reaper. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like that blow people's minds. Yeah. Fucking fight club it, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do think that that would be really interesting. Yeah. And it's funny, coming into this review, I definitely wanted to bring up some of, like, the weird problems I had. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it sounds like I hated the movie, but I really did not intend for that to be the case. It does just have, like, a lot of weird, uh, questionable decisions in it, yeah. but... No, um, I just I think it, it's like I'm mean, even I'm saying with like the the editing like there's something there mm-hmm. that they kind of just they there's missteps maybe because of it's so long like like even some things you brought up especially the Jamaican shit. Um, oh, that is the worst. Right Wha- like okay, so there's an old Jamaican lady in the hospital who's in pain and she's dying, and she because she's close to death's door and realizes that Brad Pitt is death. Fine. Why does he have to speak in a Jamaican accent? Mm-hmm. It's not like she speaks German 
Mm-hmm. And so since he's deaf and he understands all languages, right. he speaks German to her. He just speaks in a bad Jamaican accent. Right. And all I could think was, because we've watched a couple movies with Brad Pitt now, the one that we watched where it was him and Harrison Ford and he was like the IRA guy. Mm-hmm. What was that mm-hmm. movie called? Devil's Own. Yeah, The Devil's Own. Like when we watched that. And I think you brought up like some trivia about the movie that like a lot of people thought that his or, or no, no. What it was is a snatch. Mm. Like everybody thought that his British accent was so bad that they gave him the pikey role so that he wouldn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I remember saying about um, The Devil's Own that, you know, I'm not super familiar with Irish accents, but I thought that he did an OK job. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just kind of gross and brutal him doing the Jamaican accent yeah. in this, and they yeah. should not have had him do it. And That's... I can't fathom why they did. Seriously, it was just so cringy that, and then just on top of being like, why, why is he so good at talking to people like this? But he, you know, he he acts like a childish robot that doesn't know yeah. how to tie his shoes. Otherwise, just like, what is the you know, this just feels like from scene to scene, they just thrown in whatever they think was interesting for that, you mm-hmm. know, two and a half minutes of screen time, whatever it is. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. The movie is a little bit of a mystery. Um, I Me- will say that I did all in all enjoy it. Um, one of my least favorite things has to be the fact that the quote unquote villain uh, drew like the young corporate guy Mm -hmm. that he turned out to be a mole the whole time. Like I so unnecessary only there. So that that final scene where they get him on the phone. And even that, like uh, Brad Pitt acts like such a fucking weirdo who doesn't understand the world, the whole movie. And then at the end, he just like makes up a lie about being an FBI agent and is Mm -hmm. acting like so fucking confident. Right. Like, what does he he know know about FBI agents? He doesn't know what peanut butter is. Right. How does he know what the FBI is if he doesn't know what peanut butter is? Yeah, he didn't know what taxes were. Yeah. But it's just interesting to show him, like, loving peanut butter, like a weirdo down in the kitchen with the staff. Like, Yeah, to endear him to the common man. Yeah. Yeah, like, so I really wish that that character, like, movie as is without changing the premise if there was one thing I could get rid of aside from the Jamaican accent, it would be the fact that uh, Drew was like a corporate plant the whole time. Yeah. I would have just... liked it better if he was just like kind of a jerk that mm-hmm. you don't really like. But, you know, he actually does feel like uh, Anthony Hopkins isn't in the best frame of mind because he doesn't yeah, get along with totally. the Brad Pitt character. It would have made so much more sense if it was like... Uh... Say, like, Quince was the number two, and this guy, Drew, comes in and kind of, like, pushes him out of the way and takes over. Mm-hmm. That works yeah. so much better than, like, actually making him a plant for this other company, which doesn't even make sense. Sounds like Yeah, and comes in at the very walls. end as well. Yeah. yeah. Feels like, like sounds, it was thrown in at the last minute. Yeah, sounds like someone just has to, like, rat Drew out to the FBI, and he's screwed, you know? Yeah. But, and something else, like, that could have cut this movie down by 20 minutes is... The party scene just goes on too long at the end. Like, they were so precious with every single moment. It feels like there's about six endings where you think it's about to end. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I am thinking to myself, the, you know, death wanting to take Claire Fulani with him, notwithstanding. Like, okay, when he finally does leave and take her father with him, like, 
first she met Brad Pitt in a coffee shop and he was super nice and then she never saw him again and then he shows up at her house and he's a completely different person she's weirded out by him eventually falls in love with him and they're like professing their love she left her boyfriend for him and then when he leaves what's going to happen and i kind of knew in the back of my head that it would turn out like oh he was wasn't or dead he was in a coma the whole time and so the original version of him wakes back up or something and they just have him walk back over the bridge like it was fucking magic, but right. I don't know. It wasn't wasn't super crazy about how that was handled. I thought since she worked in the hospital that was like a block away from where Brad Pitt got hit, she was gonna like find his body in the morgue or something like that and realize, oh god, he's still walking around. Or I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, there's just a lot of different ways they could have taken it. Yeah, and where they, where they but ultimately, like top of the list, they just had to make sure it was like drama. Romance, melodrama. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would definitely say my least favorite part or performance in the movie was Brad Pitt. And Hands down. I definitely think that it's partially the writing, partially the directing, and partially his performance. Yeah, I'm not letting agree. anybody off the hook there. Yeah, I would agree completely. Because I would even say, like, in no at no time should Brad Pitt come off as a creep. But he does in this. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I don't know if it's his fault, whose fault it is, but. Yeah. A couple of quick fun facts about this one. Oh, please. <laughs> in its opening weekend, this film opened third behind The Water Boy in its second yeah. week of release. And I still know what you did last summer. <laughs> nice. I had heard this before, this trivia tidbit about this movie, and was reminded about it when I was reading up on it for the show. This was one of like three movies that debuted the trailer for The Phantom Menace along with it. Oh. And so there were like rampant reports of people buying tickets to see this movie, going in just watching the trailers and then leaving, <laughs> which some people think could have like had a minor bump to the uh the ticket sales. Mhm. Uh, cuz the movie it made 142.9 million. Tell me something. Where does the $90 million budget go in this movie in 1998? Oh. Like, I mean, CG. Car accident, maybe? CG or... in the movie. Car accident. Mm-hmm. Maybe the fireworks at the end. I mean, his reflection just in Hopkins, the. That cast? Would they just, you know, was I mean, half of thing. that the cast? Like, Anthony Hopkins, let's just say they paid Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins each $15 million to be in this. Where'd the other 60 million go? Was it renting like the extravagant mansion that Anthony Hopkins character lives in? I guess building that giant fucking party set on the bay at the end was pretty big. I mean, that was a huge fucking set. Shoot. Maybe just like shooting on location in New York. Yeah, maybe. There was a lot of scenes if you think about it. But it wasn't like a lot of like out in like the city walking around. There was like a couple street scenes, but mostly it was like, in an office, in a boardroom, in Anthony Hopkins' mansion, and then that one outdoor set where the party takes place. Gee, man, I really have no idea. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't got ripped believe, off could not believe that budget for 1998 for a, a non-action like action movie. I, that's fucking wild. And the other thing, so I don't remember how much we talked about Martin Brest when we reviewed uh, Scent of a Woman, but... Not much, I don't think. This guy has only directed five movies 
uh, feature films anyway. Well, that's not true. I think he might have directed six, but mm-hmm. um, starting with the first one I'm going to mention, this is a crazy run of movies. Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run, Scent of a Woman, this movie, Geely. Oh. And apparently, from what I was reading. God, he did Geely. So he, he did Geely, which was supposed to just be like a straight. I, I didn't know the premise of Geely. I thought it was just like a romantic comedy. Apparently, it began its life as a mobster film because the premise of it that I, I didn't know this. Ben Affleck is a hitman who was supposed to like kidnap someone's special needs brother and hold him for ransom. And uh, J- uh, Jennifer Lopez is like also some mob person who was sent along to make sure he does the job properly and then they fall in love. I did not know that was the premise of that movie. Apparently, it was supposed to be like a straight up mobster movie. But then the studio decided, no, if we put the two of them in it, they're like a couple right now. We got to turn this into like a romance film. Oh, boy. And at some point they like took the edit away from Martin Brest and he had such a bad experience on that movie. He quit directing and hasn't made a movie since. How is that ever a good idea to step in that late in the game? Yeah. And try to change the movie like that much. It's just mm-hmm. silly. Yeah. I don't know. But. Just what a wild, what a wild group of movies. Beverly Hills Cop, like action comedy, then Midnight Run, which is like a kind of a thriller light comedy with uh, Robert De Niro, Mm -hmm. then Scent of a Goddamn Woman, Mm -hmm. and then this, which feels like it was, you know, a little bit of a misstep, and then Geely, just, yeah, what a weird career. Totally. Uh, And that's all I got for this one, so. All right, man. You know what time it is. (sighs) Time to talk about some posters. Posters, baby. So starting out, so this was tough. Uh, Seven Seal, I mean, came out in 1957, is a Swedish film. We looked over so many different posters and couldn't decide what was actually the original theatrical poster. So we just went with one that seems to be pretty synonymous. Black and white, death standing there, holding his cape out kind of Dracula style. Mm -hmm. And then in the... The black void created by his cape, you see the like half silhouetted face of Max von Sydow. I mean, quite nice. Yeah, it's a nice image. Yeah, the white uh, white text on the black background. Black and mm-hmm. white, like the movie. Uh, indicative of the, the tone and the look of the film. It's I mean, just I a guess, nice image. If you don't know this movie and you see this, I don't know if you're necessarily going to say that's the Grim Reaper, but you might because it certainly <laughs> looks... Yeah. Could be anything, but yeah. Uh, I think it works. I think it's a very nice image. Yeah, totally. And it does that thing where it's like a big close-up of the lead actor, but it still feels, it doesn't feel like egregious, like they were just doing it to show off, look who the actor is, because, I mean, back then, who the hell would have known who Mm. Max von Sydow was anyway? I don't know if maybe he was a big name in Sweden at the time, but. Right. It just doesn't feel like a erroneous kind of like Photoshop job. Mm Mm-hmm. Thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I feel like I've seen this poster on the back of 7,000 comic books from yeah, the 90s in my day. Totally. I mean, I don't know why they're pressed up against. I would assume because it's like they're all crammed inside the uh, the, the phone booth or something would be the that, idea. That they never use. Yeah. Even though the phone booth is barely in this one. But people who had seen the first film would be familiar with the phone booth idea, I guess. I guess. 
but once they made the history, now they are history. I guess again too, you'd be like, oh, who's that guy? Maybe it's the Grim Reaper. I don't know if you'd immediately <laughs> think that either. Like, oh, now they're dead. You know, <laughs> but I yeah, I guess the, the fact whole, that it says now they, now are, they history are history and it shows him, you might put it together, but maybe. Uh, for a poster that is essentially just the the main characters' faces, I don't hate this. Again, it's not no. like a bad Photoshop job. It still feels like it's indicative of the tone and style of the movie. It's it's selling what it's supposed to. Yeah, I do feel like the Grim Reaper would fit in more if the movie was indeed called Bill and Ted Go to Hell. But totally, yeah, not bad. Cowards. <laughs> and then meet Joe Black. I mean, I'd say that it's pretty indicative of the tone and style of the movie. <laughs> right. Right. But, you know. It tells you being, nothing about what the yeah, film is, though. Meet Joe Black. Sooner or later, everyone does. I guess that makes sense if you know what the movie is. Yeah. It's like a but, clever little line, but it yeah. doesn't do anything to sell the movie. It only no. works after you know what it is. Right. And then just the image. It's like the image doesn't sell the idea of him at all. Like. Shouldn't he be in shadow or should this be black and white? You know, but instead it's like golden hues on his mm-hmm. perfectly dyed hair because it's 1998 Brad Pitt. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, this fits the tone of the movie, but it just doesn't tell you anything about it. Like this to me looks like if they did like a novelization of the of Meet Joe Black, this would mm-hmm. be the photo cover of the novelization. Because yes. anybody who's going to read the book has probably already seen the movie. Yeah, totally. So yeah, it's just it's not that impressive. Mm-hmm. And th- so this would work much better if the movie got edited and you didn't find out till the end. Mm-hmm. I would even say you'd probably have to lose the tagline. But yeah. So what's our rating system tonight, Mills? All told, I think I'm going to give. Uh, I think I'm going to give Meet Joe Black a pawn. <laughs> I'm going to give Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. A bishop. And I'll uh, give a king to the seventh seal. Uh, well played. Well played. Good golf clap. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. I must concur. Excellent. Mm. Okay. Uh, oh. By burn time. Yeah, baby. Uh, would you like to go first or shall I? I'll go first. All right. I feel like this is pretty cut and dry. I'm buying the seventh seal. I enjoyed it that much. This would be a movie I could see myself buying and rewatching, mm-hmm. even just for just for the cinematography alone. I could turn the sound off and just like have it on in the background while I'm doing something else. Just look up every couple minutes and be like, I want to pause this and draw this scene. Like it felt like it was that was like a a big time uh, something I came away from or came away with rather with this mm-hmm. movie. And it, 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 it even I, I get it. It's like one of those movies, like it's an old movie I've never seen that people love. And like, I actually get it now. So it excites me to like look more into <laughs> it and watch it again. Now you can rub it in other people's faces when they don't yeah. know what it is. <laughs> oh, I've seen the seventh seal. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I've seen Criterion Spine number 11. Have you? <laughs> oh, is it that low? It is number 11. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> Um, I think that right. was in the IMDb trivia. That's why. That's why well, I know that. Well played. Well played. And then um, I'll rattle it off. I'm going to borrow Bogus Journey. Burn Meet Joe Black. At least a Bogus Journey. I had fun. Meet Joe Black. I did not. And it basically boils down to that. While for you more than me, Bill and Ted was like wearing on you. 
where I could certainly see that happening. I just found myself at least having fun in plenty of practical effects, which I'll always like. And then Mijo Black just kept me, left me scratching my head for hmm. three hours straight until yeah. my scalp was raw. <laughs> Reopening those thorn scrapes, eh? Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, burn Bogus Journey. Mm. Again, maybe it was partially the mood I was in or something, but I did just find that I was done with that movie by like the two thirds point. No surprise after your review. I got yeah, you. Just, uh, God, I was just annoyed by it after a while. A lot of, lot of stuff to like in there. Like I said, a lot of the visuals and concepts and all, but man, it just felt like a fucking assault on my frontal lobe. So an hour and 42 minutes ago, I was going to say, hopefully by the end of tonight, I, we would have like air guitar as our new thing. Sadly, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, no, probably not. That's no, okay. All right. Fair we'll enough. find something else. Too. Fair enough. <laughs> so then it comes down to Meet Joe Black and the Seventh Seal. And... Part of me feels like this is a betrayal. Part of me feels like I've just got to be true to myself here. Uh, the Seventh Seal, when I watched it, I do feel like I have an appreciation and an understanding of it. Uh, I did think it was nice to look at visually. Uh, it wasn't like a mind-blowing experience for me or anything. Mm-hmm. And it is a movie where I feel like I've seen it once and I probably never need to see it again. You know, I don't know if... Some Criterion fans out there would look down on me for saying that, but this is definitely not one that I feel like I need to own, even even now. Meet uh, Joe I do, Black is? I don't feel like I need to own Meet Joe Black either, but of the three movies, I would say that the I had the strongest reaction to Meet Joe Black, Oof. and I enjoyed elements of it more than the other two. Because like I said, there's a lot of weird shit that, you know, it's it doesn't break the movie Meet Joe Black for me, but there's a lot of things that did, as we discussed, have me scratching my head like you. Mm-hmm. But much more than a black and white Swedish introspective film about the afterlife uh, from 1957, I think a lot of it is just like the tone and the style. And Anthony Hopkins was great, and Claire Forlani is cute, and. I did really like all the family drama stuff and even a lot of the business drama stuff. I think that the last hour of the movie goes on a little too long, but um, yeah, I think if it came down to it, I would probably rewatch Meet Joe Black before I would rewatch The Seventh Seal. Mm. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy Meet Joe Black. I'm wow. gonna borrow The Seventh Seal, and I'm going to burn bogus journey wildly unexpected uh expected yeah like i like i said in in towards the end of our review of meet joe black i didn't come into the review expecting to like everything i said about it was going to be bad Mm -hmm. and it's it's easier to get across like how confounding some of the premises are in the movie than it is to get across just like how comfortable I felt in like mm. the tone and the feel and the era of the movie. Millsy, you are ride or die late nineties. I, I love you for it. I, I can't deny that that's an easy, <laughs> not an easy win, but it's uh-huh. like an easy thumbs up on the side of a movie uh. 
when it just fits into that feeling. It just has a feeling that I can't you're, describe. Safe to say you're hooked on a feeling. Yeah, I would I would say that I am. All right. So, you know, maybe my justification didn't make a whole lot of a sense, but uh, that's the way it's going <laughs> to fall for me. Hey, that's how it works here. I got to go with my feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, on one of my favorite podcasts, Film Junk, uh, they have a term for one of the members of the show. Sean tends to give every like classic movie that he has blind bought on Criterion and finally gotten around to watching five out mm-hmm. of five, mm. and they refer to that as Criterionitis, which is just <laughs> like giving the movie an extra bump because a you bought it without uh-huh. seeing it, and B, it's generally considered a classic. Uh-huh. And I feel like I would be suffering from criterionitis if I gave Seventh oh. Seal the win over Meet mm. Joe Black, which admittedly put me into a comfy place. Wow. So, wow. This outside stimuli, Milzy. I don't want to be down with the sickness, man. Apparently not. <laughs> well, I didn't know how this one was going to shake out. I didn't either, honestly. So... <laughs> That's why. Hey, so it keeps us coming. For back. all I knew, you were going to be like a big Bill and Ted fan. So, <laughs> uh, I love it. <laughs> love this thing of ours. All right. Um, time to find out what we're watching next. Let's do it for the big three zero. Big three zero. Bear with me. How many uh, episodes we got, Mills? <laughs> do we want to throw in our? <laughs> Uh, Bill and Ted, Wayne's World, and Airheads trio? Because if yeah. so, we have 215 to pick from. All right, let's just do that. <laughs> let's just play fast and loose here. Here we go. Uh-huh. Oh, Millsy, low number, low number. 23. 23. Next episode is... Okay. Yes. Yellow is the new black. Mm. I'm extremely excited for this. Okay. I have no idea what I'm about to get into. I've not seen any of these, but I've been really wanting to dive into this for a while. So, Okay. All right. I like the fact that you probably, you, you may not even know what the connection between these movies is right now as we're, as we're talking. I, I have no idea. All right. Well. Yeah. I don't even know why it's named this. I will tell you when we're done recording in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. All right. So, yeah. Yellow is the new black for episode 30. Here we go. And for episode 29, Hmm. I'm Ryan Miller. Hi. I'm Joe Daxberger. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, 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 happy.